good. Here, how are you? Okay, so anyway, I'm up here because this whole life event change that I've had has really indicated to me how important it is to really look at how many ordinary heroes we have that really don't get the recognition that they should. And so that's why I'm wanting to start by interviewing a lot of people. And I thought that starting with some people that have lived a long life is a good place to start. Well, and so you, right now, when you talk about long life, <laughs> but, but you know, okay, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. This is your well, no, platform. Uh, well, I was going to say, uh, when you mentioned coming up, I told one, I said, you know, I think they'll, uh, one of the biggest surprises and the thing that interests me, interest me most in, in living a long life, the airplane squadron I was with, VPV-19, uh -huh. broke up, or, or didn't break up, it, they decommissioned it in 1946. Okay. That was after the war. Uh-huh. And we had... About 200 men, enlisted men, uh -huh. which I was enlisted at that time. And we had been together for a little over, little over two years. And you was buddy, buddy, friend, friend, and real friends. Uh-huh, sure. And anyway... We didn't see each other until night again until 1987. <laughs> oh my gosh! And uh, <coughs> my pilot called me one morning or one day when I was down in the office, and he said, "Doc, he said, what would you do if I get our crew together? Uh -huh. would, would would you come?" And I said, "You tell me where you're going to have it, and I'm on my way." <laughs> well, it turned out that instead of just getting our crew together. The more people he talked to, the more people that wanted to have a wow a, a, a full reunion of our squadron. Uh -huh. And we didn't, of course, you didn't get a full reunion. Some of them are dead. Some of them are too busy. Some of them this and that. But we got almost half of them. We had a nice, nice group. And we met. Uh -huh. Where? We met in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. And that's where I'd gone to school and. Uh, the women were, were supposed to be with us, so we took our wives. Of course, they hadn't; they didn't know each other. And Wanda was a little bit leery of meeting. Uh, but I told her, I said, well, just find somebody and say, let's go out and visit Memphis. But anyway, <laughs> the first meeting we had, we got to talking about the squadron. And one guy got up, and it was true. He got up, and he said, you know, fellas, he said, I appreciate you. I know your names, I know you, but he said, this is not the squadron I was in. Huh. <coughs> and we got to talking, why wasn't it the squadron? He said, well, things happen to people, and things happen in the squadron. He said, I was there every damn day. And he said, I don't remember any of what you guys are talking <laughs> about. Well, we got to thinking about it. And you know what happens to us, to almost everybody in that squadron. In that period of 40 years that we didn't know each other, uh -huh. 
We've told war stories. Not many war stories, but occasionally you tell. And one of two things happened. One, one thing that happened was you just didn't remember it exactly like it happened. Sure. And a lot of good things happened in the squadron. And some bad things happened in the squadron. And as you told those stories, you kind of forgot just exactly what did happen. <laughs> and you just kind of <coughs> built it up just a little bit. Right. And after telling the story for 10, 15, 30 years, it become true. Uh-huh. That was our squad. Yeah. We, one of the main things that happened was uh, our duty, part of our duty when we was overseas was they would bring out a new carrier full of boys just out of college as pilots. Uh -huh. And when they got out in, in South Pacific, they wanted to give them a little bit of training before they actually got where it's going to get rough for them. So they would set up with us. We could fly on our planes. We could fly 14 hours a day. Uh -huh. like, Real easy, and those pilots could only fly, you know, two or three hours on, and they run out of fuel. So we would go down to Ponape, and these pilots would come down there, and they would go in and stray from some of the town, and this and that, and they would then fly back, and they would get shot at once in a while down there. And lo and behold, one day one of them got shot down. And the, the squadron, the, the crew that was up there, when it was going, that was going on, kept flying around and around, and they dropped him a, a, a raft, uh -huh. and he got on that. And the wind was blowing so hard, it kept blowing him back towards the island. <laughs> and he was trying to stay, and you could, they said, now, they said, Here's where the story gets wild because I, I started, I, I went two different ways on the same. I, I said, they said, I said it enough that I said it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm telling, I'm telling the story like I was there. I wasn't there. I was back at camp probably playing baseball. <laughs> but I was there, and what happened to them? Uh -huh. uh, they kept seeing this this pilot trying to get away from the island, and uh -huh. he just could not get away. Well, they didn't land and go down and get him because landing a seaplane in the open sea is not exactly what you call fun. Sure. I mean, yeah. you're liable to lose the plane and all. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they, they got worried enough about him, and he was having enough trouble, and they could see that he was hurt. I mean, he got hurt when he hit the water, uh -huh. and they could see that he was hurt. So the pilot told, asked them to take a vote whether they should go try to go down and get him or not. Really? It wasn't their job to go get him because wow. of being in the open sea. But they decided to go get him. Uh -huh. 
And they landed the plane and taxied over and picked up the dude, got him in the plane. But they couldn't take off. <laughs> the, the ocean was too rough for them oh, wow. to take off. So all they could do was they'd start up the engines every once in a while and taxi away from the island. And then, but then they called, they called the, they had their radio and they called for help and a carrier, or not a carrier, a destroyer came down uh-huh. and picked them up. Uh-huh. And they got him back. And of course, those boys <laughs> was kind of heroes. And, yeah, and he was a great boy. When Christmas come up, uh, <laughs> Uh, they all that whole crew got <coughs> stuff from their, his folks and what was this and that and it was that was one of the they, they that was one of the best stories we had going. Well, what was well, everybody, name? almost everybody, just did what I did. They told a story exactly <laughs> like I told you, like they were there. They were there. <laughs> what was his name? And we. We weren't there, <laughs> but, and and uh, there's even one or two crews that had told us that much. They thought they did it. <laughs> so, 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 so anything that I tell you that back that for may or may not be well have a bit of truth that. in it. What was the name of the guy that got rescued? Yeah. Huh? What was the name of the guy that got rescued? I don't know his name. Okay. I don't know his name, but. Uh, they, it, it, they really, they really did pull. They, they took a chance of losing eleven. We uh-huh. had each crew had eleven, eleven in it, and uh, they, they took a chance of losing eleven to go get him. To get and the one. Just the one. Wow. And, uh, and they, they did exactly what they did. Now, in doing that, they lost the. I don't know. What one of those. Planes cost at that time, uh-huh. but they lost the the, the the destroyer sank the the plane. Oh wow! Because they didn't want their stuff on the plane that they didn't want the Japanese to get. Oh wow! So when they left, it, there was nothing that they could pick up, and uh, it was a uh, quite a story. But then we uh, we we were real lucky. Because when we went to Iwo Jima, it was all open sea landing. Uh-huh. And, uh... So you were at Iwo Jima? Yep. Okay. Tell yep. me about that. Sitting on a wing with a Thompson submachine gun. <laughs> <laughs> and it was... Uh, I, you know, these, these, talking to these kids, they say, well, they've got so many awful things in the war right now. And I said, friend, you haven't seen anything awful until you've seen a, a flamethrower. <laughs> and, of course, we were just about four from here to the... No, no, we slower than that. About maybe four from here to the school over there. Uh-huh. Uh, off, off, offshore. And uh, what, what the, we were doing up there, they uh, always... The, the reason they took Iwo Jima, there was a landing strip there. Uh-huh. And the B-29s were flying from Saipan. And they were flying, had to get a full gas load and ca- to carry their bombs up there. And they were flying from Saipan and they'd fly past Iwo and go on up to Tokyo or 
someplace up in there, do their bombings and come back. And sometimes they had enough gas to get back, and occasionally they didn't have enough gas to get back. Okay. So they had to have uh, a place to refuel, and they took Iwo Jima to get that airstrip where the B-29s could come down and regas. Wow. And so they couldn't bring any land planes in because the Japanese still helped the, the thing. So they put, took our planes up there because we could, our gasoline and stuff, we, we had seaplane tenders and they took care of our planes. Uh-huh. And uh, they would, uh, we would we'd fly up north every day. I, I say we. <laughs> Our planes would go north every day to make sure that there wasn't any invasion groups coming down. Because uh-huh. it was real close to Japan. I mean, sure. And uh, so at night, there was ships around there. The USS Missouri was there, mm-hmm. and there was ships all around all day long. But when when the sun would set, all the ships would leave, except our seaplane tender. Okay. And it had to stay there for our crews to have a place to be, and to they uses the seaplane tender at night as a hospital ship. They bring the wounded back. Out. Okay. But that's the only place that I actually uh, most places that I was in the service when we got there it had already been captured. Okay. Uh, Now we went to Saipan and Saipan wasn't wasn't yet secured and we were there before we went to Iwo Jima. Uh And but at night all the ships would leave, and there we were all alone. <laughs> and but they was they'd be sending planes down, and uh-huh. they, they sent a few few planes down, but they never did hit any of our the, the, the tender or anything. Wow! So we managed. We were only up there for I think it was six or seven days. Really? Yeah, because they captured the. Yeah, enough to, uh, enough to secure the, and the minute they secured, I don't know where those planes come from, but the minute they secured the, the air, air strip, I mean, see the planes landing. Really? And uh, that was where the atomic bomb took off from Sa- or Tinian, which uh, was right next to Saipan, uh-huh. and you could just look over and see the Tinian from where we were at on Saipan. And it was a an interesting deal. Yeah. But we were we were that is the only real war. Well, that counts. That I saw. And, but <laughs> you know it 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 it, it was. Oh, I I tell you. They talk about bravery. I mean those Marines and Army. Now we had one plane. When we were at Iwo Jima, we had one plane. Uh, practically everything out there was volcanic sand. Okay. And 
you dropped the buoy anchors, and sometimes they'd catch a rock, and sometimes they didn't. And so one night, one of the crews, and that's why we had crews on there. Uh, one of the planes broke loose, and it started drifting toward the island, uh -huh. and they couldn't stop it. It just and when they hit the island, <laughs> the Marines hit the plane, <laughs> and they had ever. Machine gun, ever pistol, ever. They took all the ammunition. I mean, they cleaned it up. It was a struggle for life. Uh -huh. I mean, it. You make a lot of heroes when you put the people on an island <laughs> and back off, and they haven't got any way to any place to go. That's right. I mean, well, you, they couldn't run. They were there. Well, yeah, definitely. Now, the one thing I want to do before we get any farther is I'm talking to Bob and Wanda Hackley. Mm -hmm. You know, just make sure that we establish that. And so I want to know, both of you, how old are both of you? Well, Wanda, now I'm talking because when she starts talking, she can start talking. Wanda's going to be 93 next week. Christmas okay. Eve next All week. Right. And I'm 95. 95. 95. And, okay, let's start out by saying we're here in Crane, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And so tell me, you were an ophthalmologist? No. An no. optometrist? Optometrist. That's what I meant to yeah. say. And how did you get here? What brought you to Crane, Missouri in 2019? Well, I was born here in 1924. Okay, well, that's where I want to start. Yeah. And were you born here as well? No. She was okay. born in Oklahoma. Uh, where were you born? Oklahoma City. Well, I, I was born in Tonkawa. <laughs> that was just a, another place in Oklahoma. Uh -huh. But uh, I met I, her in, uh, up in Oklahoma City. And so when did you come here? How did you get? How did you guys meet? After I married her. Brought her here. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's a good, a good one. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good one. But how did you get married? What was happening? Well... Uh, at the end of the war, uh, I came home in August of 1946, 45, 45, mm -hmm. and while I was home, the war ended, uh -huh. and I had uh, orders. I was home on a 12 to 30-day leave because we just come in from overseas. And I had orders to report back to San Diego and was going to form a new squadron. <laughs> and I was going to go out again. Well, while I was home and the war ended, then I got orders to report to Norman, Oklahoma. Okay. Uh, that's, uh, that, that's where I went to aviation ordnance school was Norman, Oklahoma. I'd been down there two or three years before. And it was a aviation school. And went down there. The war was over. They had nothing for us to do, especially. <laughs> so I was out one day just kind of messing around. Well, I was washing my whites is what I was doing. And we used to wash them on the board and soap. And, I don't know and I was out there just kind of wait, killing time. And I had a friend come up. Uh -huh. And he said, Bob, would you do something for me? And I said, well, if I could. He said, would you go on a blind date 
And I said, no way. I don't care for a blind date. Thank you very much. Well, he said, I've got a girlfriend. And he said, I'd really like her, but her mother won't let her go out just alone. She gets, she's got to take one of her girlfriends. Uh-huh. And he said, I need somebody. <laughs> and I said, well, you got the wrong person. He said, well, if you'll go, he said, I'll pay all the expenses. I said, let's go. <laughs> and so we went into Oklahoma City, and I met her. And uh, pretty nice young little girl. And uh-huh. She had a job, and she dressed real well. And she was nice <laughs> and polite. And, Kind of a pretty little thing, and I we dated not too much because we didn't get off. And, and I was only down there for a, a couple of months before I got shipped to Pensacola. So I really, I really didn't know Wanda a lot. I, mean, <laughs> uh, I met her, and I thought the world knew all of her. But anyway, I got shipped to uh, Pensacola, Florida, and it was Christmas coming up. So I sent her a nice little Christmas gift, and, and uh, I don't remember now what it was. And I sent her mother a bunch of flowers. I remember that <laughs> for Christmas. I was kind of playing both sides, of it. <laughs> and, and that was that. And in February, I got shipped to St. Louis and discharged out of the Navy. Uh-huh. And so when I come home. Boy, there wasn't many girls around here. And there wasn't many boys. Everybody could choose from. Uh, uh, Dad had, had an old car. It was a 1940, I guess, maybe older than that. Packard. Uh-huh. And it, he just had it engine overhaul. But anyway, I got to thinking when I got home, there I sat. And I didn't have a car of my own, and it was boring. And I was—I missed a lot. So that's another story I'll tell you in a minute. But uh, I didn't have anything to do, uh-huh. so I went down. I had to go down. We used to go down, and they'd crank and call uh-huh. Oklahoma, and he'd go through Kansas City and St. Louis and back to, you know, how uh-huh. you'd hear all. Anyway, I called her, and she seemed kind of happy to hear from me, and I said. Would you mind if I'd come down and we'd have a date as a civilian? And she said, no, but she said, Bob, I, I want to tell you. She said, I'm engaged to engage. Oh, and wow. I said, are you? And she said, yes. I thought, man, that's just a girl I want to go see. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, no problem. <laughs> so I got dad to loan me his car, and it just had been remodeled. I mean, reworked the engine. And it used to, when they did that, it used to, you had to drive it 30 miles an hour for so many miles. Right. And then 35, and you know. Sure. And so I started to Oklahoma City in that car, driving at 30 miles an hour. Now, that's going to take a while. <laughs> and you had to go, that was before the turnpike. Uh-huh. You had to go right through Oklahoma City, I mean, through Tulsa. Anyway, I picked up a man and I think it was around the Osho, I don't remember now this is where. Anyway, he rode with me for oh an hour or so and he said, Sir, would you mind letting me out? And I said, Well, yeah, but what are you gonna do? He said, Well I can make better time. <laughs> I let him out. He he did anyway I let him out, but I made it to Oklahoma City. 
And come to find out, she... Well, that would have been, what, one full day, two full days? How long would that have taken? Uh, oh, good gosh. I, I guess it's, it's probably... Oh, I, I can't even remember how long it did take. Uh, eight hours, probably. Okay. Eight hours, probably. Yeah, I'm sure it, it was a, It was a full day's drive. Yeah. And uh, But anyway... Uh, come to find out that she was kind of teased me or something. She wasn't too engaged with that. Uh, <laughs> well, tell me about that. How engaged were you? Well, yeah. I, I wasn't. That was about, uh, I told him that. <laughs> to, to get out of that darling day. <laughs> really? Wow. But uh, it worked out all right. But actually... What I was going to say about, uh, I'm one of the strangers, Dale. I really, really, really enjoyed the Navy. Uh-huh. Uh, it is nice to get up every morning, know you've got something to do, and they, they tell you exactly what you're going to do that day. Uh-huh. You go do it, and you're off. Uh-huh. At the end of the month, you go collect your check, and you look at it, and it's twenty-one dollars, and that makes you feel real rich. But by the same token, I've told somebody, I said, you know, I would work the rest of my life for the same equivalent. When you got twenty-one dollars in your pocket, when somebody's paying all your insurance, when they're feeding you, where they're housing you, where they're doing hospitalization for you. You have no expenses. That $21 is absolutely the throwaway. <laughs> I said, that's, that's kind of life I'd like to live. <laughs> but anyway, I stayed with, with the Navy, enlisted uh, as an aviation ordinanceman for seven years. Okay, from when to when? Pardon? From when to when? Yep, seven now, years. Now, what was, how long, like, what were the dates when you were there? Oh, what was the dates? Well, I, I, uh, I was 1943 when I went in, mm -hmm. and I, I was enlisted until 1950. Okay. Uh, and, I, and I got out, and they let, I, I, I got out of the Navy, completely out of the Navy for, uh, on, after three years. I had three years of active duty, and then I was out of the Navy. <coughs> And started school over at SMS. Uh-huh. But when I started school over at SMS, I was walking through the hall one day, and there was a, a recruiter there, Navy recruiter. Uh -huh. And he called me over. I had my, uh, I had a flight jacket on. And he called me over. He said, "You, I see you were in the Navy. And I said, yeah. He said, well, what was your rate? And I told him I was aviation ordinance from first class. And he said, well, would you like to keep the rate? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, if you sign up, I can let you keep the rate. And if, if you have, anything happens, well, you, you have to go back. You go back with your rate. And I said, well, that sounded good. So I signed up. I was out of the Navy for about six months. Oh, really? And then I stayed in as an aviation ordinanceman until 1950. I went to optometry school down in Memphis. Uh -huh. And when I got out of optometry school, the Korean War was starting, uh -huh. 
And we come up up, up here in Screen after I graduated down there. And I kept getting word from the Navy, what are you doing and all this. And, <laughs> be, be sure to keep close touch with us because we may need you. Well, when I went up to take the state board for optometry, I decided I'd try to get a commission. And right after I took the board, I went over to the Navy recruiter and tried to get a commission as an optometrist. Uh -huh. And he said he'd run all the tests, health and mental and all this. I, I guess I passed it. Cause he, <laughs> but he said, he said, Doc, he said, you might as well forget it. Because he said the Medical Service Corps is the smallest corps in the Navy and the optometric section is the smallest section in the Medical Service Corps. He said there are not over four or five <coughs> optometrists in the Navy. Really? So wow. I said, well, I, 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 I hate that. So I come home, and I was walking down, I was talking to Frank Huffines one day. Okay. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I told him, I said, well, Frank, I was trying to get, get, in, get in the Navy as it, with a commission. And he said, well, what do you need? And I said, I don't know what I need. He told me I couldn't get it. <laughs> he said, well, you know, he said, Dewey Short is down in Galena. Uh -huh. I he said, I know Dewey Short is down in Galena, and he's a Republican and I'm a Democrat. <laughs> I said, well, that doesn't mean a lot to me. But I had dated one of Dewey's, not no, there again, I got, uh, we didn't date back in my days in high school. We didn't have the money to date. <laughs> we went out with girls, but we met him at the movie after he already got in. <laughs> we might buy him a sack of popcorn, but we wouldn't. Anyway, uh, I've run around with one of his nieces. Uh -huh. and what was her name? Was that Fan or who was that? Huh? It's Ann. Oh, what was, what was her name? Her name was Ann Vineyard. Okay. Yeah. And she, uh, anyway, Frank said, I don't care. He said, let's go down and see what Dewey Short's got to say. Uh-huh. So down I went. Uh-huh. And we went in the short home down at Galena. Uh-huh. And it just so happened when we walked in, Dewey was coming down the steps of the end of the parlor. And Frank said, Dewey said, I want you to meet Bob Hackley. Well, we shook hands. He said, what can I do for you, Bob? And I said, well, I'm in the Navy right now. Oh, oh, you want out. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I, I don't want out. I said, I, but I would like to go with the commission. He said, what in? And I said, optometry. He said, do you happen to know who introduced the bill that made optometrists commission? And I said, I sure do. He said, who was it? I said, it was you. And that's the truth. Wow. And so 
he about that time there's another guy coming down behind him and he called him over and introduced him he said meet Bob Hack he said say by the way why don't you call so and so in Washington and see what they could do for Bob Bob would like to get a commission in the optometric section and he said since I introduced the bill it'd be kind of nice if, if he did get a commission and we shook hands again, and he left, and I didn't see him, and didn't think anything about it. In less than a week, I got a letter from Washington, D.C., the Navy, said, report to Kansas City on a certain date, a certain time, and accept your commission as oh, wow. optometrist in the Navy. It's who you know. So. Wow, yes, it is. I did just exactly that, and at the same time that I did that, I wrote the Navy a letter asking them to take me on active duty. Uh -huh. I said, I only have one deal that I, uh, I would like to be able to fulfill, but if you can fulfill it, I'll go on active duty immediately. And that was right after the war, they had what they call a rift, reduction in force. Uh -huh. And I said, could you guarantee me to finish 13 more years uh -huh. to get retirement if I go back in right now. Uh -huh. And they said they couldn't. Uh -huh. So I didn't go in. We, I had, Claudia was born by that time and uh, we'd set up, a, I'd set up a little practice. And, but anyway, I ended up spending 30 years uh, in the optometric section, and it was uh, 30 years of lots of trips, two weeks every month, not every month, two weeks every year, uh -huh. and uh, keep getting promotions, uh -huh. and uh, being nice, and <laughs> finally ended up uh, with a commission as a commander. Okay. And at one time, now this is, I'm not, it's just because of how long I had been in. It's, it's not any big deal. It's just long how long I had been in. It's a big deal. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's really not. I mean, no, no, it's not a big deal. It, it's it's just a matter that I wanted to reach retirement. Uh-huh. And sure. So I ended up being the top reserve optometrist. Uh-huh. And... I went out to California on a two-week trip, and I hadn't any more put, took my hat off when I got a telephone call from a, a fellow Navy optometrist, and he said, I see you're number one. <laughs> and I said, well, yes. He said, I just hate to tell you this, but he said, I'm number two. <laughs> he said, could I take you to lunch? <laughs> and I said, you sure can. So he took me down to Mexico one night, and we had a Mexican dinner and had a great talk. 
And the more I talked to him, the more I admired him. And he, I told him, and I meant it wholeheartedly, and it worked out just exactly like I thought it would. I told him, I said, I hope, and there's no doubt in my mind, that you're going to get the next, you're going to make captain. And I'm not, because I had some time that I didn't really go to the Navy for about three or four years. Uh -huh. And that, that really hurts when you have a, a dead space. And I said, your record is so much better than mine. You're, you're going to be the one that makes it. And he did make it. Oh. He did make it. And I didn't. <laughs> and so after, you, after you've been in so long and been passed over for promotion, you got your choice. You can resign your commission, and you're done with it. Uh -huh. You'll still get your retirement, but you're done with it. Uh -huh. Or you can keep your commission and retire, which I did, which means that you have all of the same deal as if you had retired from the regular Navy. Really? Uh, I could go to Fort Leonard Woods, the hospital, and it's, I've got all of the... But, but it also meant, and it meant that they could call me any time that they wanted <laughs> because I kept my commission and I didn't, didn't give it up. Uh -huh. So it was kind of a guess, guess, did I make the right decision? Right. And it just so happened for a long time that they didn't call any uh, optometrists calling me up and so I didn't have to go. But... Uh, it, uh, but anyway, the, the Navy has been a big part of wandering my life, uh, and we had some great friends. And uh, it's uh, and I have people come up now and say, "Thank you for your service." I want to say, "Hey, no, no, <laughs> thank you for sending me." <laughs> and, uh, uh, no, I'm really. I really enjoyed every minute of my 37 years with the Navy. Well, tell me about what were the things that you feel like you've learned over these 93 and 95 years? What, the things I've learned over 95 years? Yep. Well, I thought, I'll tell you what the thing. It was the same thing that, uh, oh, who was that? Uh, evangelist? Uh, Real popular events. Billy Graham? Yep, Billy Graham. Yeah. Somebody asked Billy Graham, said, if you could get a bunch of young people here, what would you tell them? Well, I thought I was going to hear him say something really demanding. Profound, yeah. You know, uh -huh. I mean, believe in God and this and that and all that. And I thought I was going to hear something. And he said, I'd tell them how short life is. Okay. And I mean to tell you, life is real short. Uh, it seems you cannot short believe. You, you right? cannot yeah. believe. You cannot believe that you're 95 years old. Uh -huh. I went to the doctor, a, a cardiac doctor, and he looked me over and raised me. And he looked. He said, "Well, Doctor Hackley, I want to tell you something." He said, "You don't look your age." But you're old. <laughs> well, that kind of shook me up. But he is right. I am old, and, and I feel it. Oh, oh, oh! And I, 
I run on to the last time I went to my doctor, Dale, and he, he said, when was the last time you had a stress test? And I said, well, 1987. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, that doesn't count. He said, that doesn't count. And that's all he said. Uh -huh. Well, I never thought any more about it, and I come home, and a couple, three weeks later, I got a call from the hospital. When do you want to set your stress test up? <laughs> and I said, whoa, wait one minute, people. No, no stress test for me. Anyway, two weeks, uh, four days later, rather, I was going to have an appointment with my cardiologist. I said, just, just cancel the stress test for right now. <laughs> so I went to my cardiologist. And he run a bunch of tests, listed my heart, and this and that. And I said, could I ask you a question? And he said, well, sure, you can ask me a question. I said, do I need a stress test? And he didn't say yes, yes, or no. He said, well, I see in your records that your doctor ordered one. <laughs> well, I said, did you see in my records where I canceled it? <laughs> he said, yeah, I saw that. I said, well, could you answer my question? He said, well, let me ask you a question instead. He saw, said, what if I run a stress test and found something? What would you do? Uh -huh. I said, now, is, in, is there any pain involved or is there no pain involved? He said, well, just like you are now, no, no pain involved. Uh -huh. I said, I do nothing. <laughs> I said, it is not my ambition and I do not want to make a hundred. Really? No, no, it is not my ambition. All I want the doctor to do for me for the next four years <laughs> is actually four and a half years. <laughs> All I want him to do is to keep me comfortable. I don't want him to do anything to lengthen my life because I do not want to be a hundred years old really? because I don't like being 95 <laughs> and it doesn't get it any better you as you like? get older. What is it that you don't like? I don't like that. I can't do what I used to do. Okay. I can't, I don't like that when I get out there and walk on that grass, I feel like I'm going to fall sometimes. Uh -huh. I don't like that. I can't go down to silver dollar city and enjoy myself like I used to. Okay. I don't like that. I can't play golf and, worth a damn. I never could play golf worth a damn, but, <laughs> but uh, I can't even, you know, there, there's so many things that you can't. I don't like this. I don't like getting up in the morning, going uh -huh. down and having breakfast, coming back and getting this chair and turning that television on. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's not, it's not worth it to me. What would be, what are the other lessons that someone young ought to know? Here's what? What are the other lessons that someone young ought to know? I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure you do. What do you say, Dale? What are the other lessons that someone young ought to know? That where's the other westerns? No, honey, <laughs> the lessons. He's what? Lessons. lessons. That's some life lessons. Life lessons. Oh, life lessons. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, Lordy. Well, I, I'll tell you. Right now, I, I think the lesson I'd want to teach people, younger people of your age, and, is make your number one priority 
right now because they mean so dang much to you. And what is your number one priority, your family? I'm going to tell you what my okay. number one priority right. is. I don't know that it was my number one priority, but it should be, thinking back on it, it would be number one priority. I would say make your number one priority your family and your friends. Okay. Because if you live long enough, you live as long as I live, every one of your family's gone. Every one of your friends is gone. Uh -huh. I call. I had a our 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 best man at our wedding was a. You remember Dope McCullough? He lived right oh, across. Oh yeah. The, oh yeah. Very much. Okay. Do you remember your son? I do, Chris. Chris. Okay. I call Chris. It hasn't been a week ago. Three or four days ago, I called. Okay. I used. To, I'd call Chris. Oh, every month or every two months. And he'd call me. Uh -huh. And we'd talk about this and that. And I called Chris, oh, a couple of months ago. And he was moaning and groaning. His <laughs> grandson was wanting him to sell. Chris had a Mercedes, no less. <laughs> he was actually wanting his granddad to sell his Mercedes. And because he wanted him to quit driving. <laughs> and so he was had the car up for sale and he hated to lose that. And they were getting attached to Uber <laughs> to take him around. And so three or four days ago, I called Chris. I hadn't heard from him for a while. And I got a hold of his wife and I said, Liz, could I talk to Chris? She said, who is this? I said, it's Bob Hackett. Oh, yeah, Bob's yelling. Let me, let me see. And she come back. She said, well, he'll talk to you. And I got on it. And he had been in the hospital uh -huh. for a month. Oh, no. That was the first day that he had been home. And he was all but crying and begging I don't know what he thought I could do. <laughs> he said, I hurt so bad, I just cannot stand it. He said, I was in the hospital for a month. They never did find out what was wrong with me. He said, I hurt all the time. He said, I was just walking around one day, and it's, it's just kind of hit me. Uh -huh. And he said, I, I was in the hospital for 30 days, and he said, I, I think I'm not going to make it, and I wanted to die at home. Huh. And he said, I, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to make it or not. And that just shocked the devil out of me. Huh. That's about all he said. He just couldn't even talk. I'm anxious to find out if he made it. Or, yeah. Uh, uh, and he's, know. what, 25 years younger than you? Huh? How much younger is he than you? He's not younger than me. He's older than I. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah. Chris would be uh, in uh, January the 2nd. Chris will be 97. Okay, all right. I so will. he realizes, and he is. I mean, that could very well be his final sure. Final goal. Yeah. And, you know, and boy, when, it, when he's gone, if I didn't have some young friends, I wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> I mean, that's, I cannot think of a, uh, I've got one 
there's one Navy guy that I still know, and he's a great guy, and he lives in Wisconsin. What's his name? His Concrite. Concrite. Okay. Concrite. He's the same. He's got the same name as a radio announcer. Cronkite. 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 Yeah, and uh, he and his wife live in, in uh, Wisconsin, and she passed away, and he's living alone. And as far as I know, right now, uh, and I'm sure I'm not right on this. I, 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 I can't believe it that I'm right on it. I hope I'm not right on it. I can't believe that. He is. The, he and I are the only ones left in the squadron. Really? But uh, I don't know of any others. Now, some of the women in the squadron, what? Well, not in the squadron. Some of the wives of the squadron members. Uh, uh, in fact, I got one that calls me every holiday. <laughs> and, uh, they're still alive. Uh -huh. And uh, she just watched. But uh, <laughs> we we quit, we quit having reunions because. Everybody was, either their wife was dying or they were dying or, or something. But getting old is, is uh, it's hard. Uh, you have to give up so much. You don't realize how lucky you are. Well, you, you probably, you had a little spurt. Had a little you, spurt. Yes, boy, I did. And I'll tell you, that's something else I would <laughs> tell tell children. Don't worry about money. The only thing to worry about, as far as I'm concerned, is your friends and your health. Okay, that's right. Because that health is something that can change on you in a hurry. It sure can. Years and years ago. Of course, when I come out of the Navy, uh, they wanted to keep me in and put me back in the hospital for a little bit because I come out with high blood pressure. Uh -huh. And I talked them out of it, and I got out of it, and I didn't have to. But I've had high blood pressure all of my life, and then I got... Cholesterol, that's when I had the angioplasty. And, uh, I quit smoking real quick. And, uh, when did you quit? 1987. Okay. And, oh, that's, that's a date to the Lord, yeah, remember? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so did you smoke? No. Of course, I didn't smoke till I went to. You know, the Navy used to, uh, well, I say the Navy, they would get. Uh, the tobacco companies would make sure that you always had a couple of cigarettes around when you went to meals, uh -huh. and they taught you how to smoke, and <laughs> and you didn't have anything to do with your twenty-one dollars except buy. That's about all. When you got overseas, <laughs> they'd come around three times a week. We were on in a uh, in a we talk, and in a we talk was was the playground. For the Navy, uh, the ships would come in, and they'd been coming over there, and they would come into the atoll, and they'd t they let half of them loose at once and put them on the island. But we had a big chain fence between us and the oh. fellows that were getting well loaded, and <laughs> there were three great big, I mean big, quantitas. And uh -huh. they were air conditioned. Uh -huh. And they were loaded with beer. <laughs> I never could understand why they couldn't put one can 
about all you had to spend money on it that was free so you didn't have to worry about that but you you still had to buy cigarettes and they were 10 cents a pack <laughs> a dollar a carton and you always had a carton of cigarettes in your wow and then uh, another little nice experience we had a when we'd fly we, they would give us I guess it was a 10 pound, maybe more, of Spam. Really? <laughs> and some other stuff, and ham stuff. <laughs> and we'd eat most of it, but we had, always had some left. Uh -huh. And there was uh, at, uh, I'm beginning to get mixed up with my island. We were stationed at that time at Kwajalein. Okay. And when we'd come in, we'd come in, we'd be, come by Inuitok. Uh -huh. And Inuitok had natives on it. Okay. And we would go by and we'd drop this this food off. And dang, he'd go out there, the little kids, push it, go right to the bottom, but those kids could go down, looked like a hundred yards down there to get that food and bring it back up. Anyway, we got to where that the, the skipper gave us permission to land. So we rode home and got found out that they, they, they liked clothing, uh, they liked t-shirts, and they liked sure. different things. And we had our folks send us that. And so every time we would go out and we could, we'd come back and we would land. And the little ones would swim out to the plains and the bigger ones would come out in the canoes and uh, we would trade. They had grass skirts and oh, wow. grass yeah. mats and uh, hats and all <laughs> this and that. And we would trade them off. And every, every once in a while, uh, they'd get some girl. And we, I always laugh about this. We hadn't seen a white woman in, uh, oh, I don't know how many months. But anyway, you could, with a... With enough stuff, you could make the colored girls take off their bizarre bazeers. <laughs> that kind of gave you a thrill. <laughs> and there was one named Anna. They evidently they had had some missionaries there because they had Anna and some other names. Anyway, uh, we had one guy. Oh, he thought he was a ladies' man, and he would get out in the canoe with them and. Kind of. Anyway, one of the girls, I told one, I said, I thought at one time she was a good-looking girl until I saw a white girl again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. But well, that, okay, so tell me about growing up in Crane. What was that like? Well, that was fun. That was fun. <laughs> growing up in Crane, uh, it, when I was growing up in Crane, that was in the 1930s. Uh -huh. 
twenties, late twenties and thirties, which meant that you were growing up during the depression, uh-huh. which meant you were growing up and didn't have much money. Which meant you were growing up and had more dang fun than you have now. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, fun. <laughs> uh, at that time, you didn't have television. Right. So, so all the kids, when the sun come out in the summertime, was out in the street. Uh-huh. I mean, when you walked down the street, you saw kids all over. You saw adults all over. Now you go down the street, you don't see anybody. Uh-huh. And uh, we had a street full of kids. And we would play from the time the sun would come up to the time we'd go down. We didn't have a swimming pool, but we went up by a big hole up by the railroad track. I mean, up by the roundhouse. Blue hole. Blue hole. Well, that'd be more. Go. No, it's huh? the blue hole. Okay. When the blue hole. Well, I don't know where the blue hole was exactly. It was down, I think, down. The blue hole is down by Glens. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. But, uh. We went up. The, there was a big hole up just 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 below the the railroad terminal up there, and we just go up there as soon as we could go. Parents didn't worry about us. Right. Uh, we would. They knew we'd be home. We'd be home, and we didn't have any money <laughs> to speak of. And I can remember one time. I, Dad worked, he was on the railroad, but he was on the extra board. He was, had the, and he, he only got to work during a Christmas holidays and Thanksgiving. So we very seldom had a family Christmas dinner and oh, really? a Thanksgiving dinner because that's, that's when the railroaders that had a regular job, they would lay off to be with their families uh-huh. and the extra board they would get to work. And uh, they, uh, they made a little money. Uh, Dad did every possible thing that he could. I remember one time he was painting the manse, uh-huh. uh, and he had a he and Lloyd Howard went together and had a forty-acre uh, apple orchard. Really? And in that apple orchard, they had several acres of, of strawberries, and Dad was would work on the railroad and take what money he could get and take it out there and put it in tree spray to spray those apple trees so that the worms wouldn't get them. Uh-huh. And he and Lloyd worked and worked for about four years, and I don't think Dad ever made money. I think the thing just ate up his money. <laughs> and he finally sold it to Lloyd Howard. Uh-huh. But Lloyd Howard is the kind of person that uh, when he took over something, seemed like it always worked uh-huh. and when Lloyd got it they started buying apples again and when dad had it it was the drought would get it or the grasshoppers oh we used to have grasshoppers I'm telling you we had grasshoppers it looked like the time of the Bible it was coming <laughs> the locusts on the and but uh, anyway uh, I never did Dad managed to working hard, and we always had food on the table. Uh-huh. Uh, we had just plain food. I know we used. I'll tell one that I didn't realize why we was eating so much because I loved it. It was mush, uh-huh. and 
We'd have mush at night. No, tell me about mush. About mush? Well, it's kind of like, in a way, but it's not, kind of like grits. It's, uh, okay. But this mush was, was a finer deal. And at night, we would have mush. And I think you could probably buy a ton of it for a dollar. And Mom would cook that, and we'd have it for supper. And then she'd put it in a crock. And set it out on the back porch. Of course, we didn't have any heat out there. And that set up and it'd be stiff in the morning. In the morning, she'd bring that mush in and she'd slice it. Uh-huh. And fry it. Okay. And we'd put maple syrup on top of it. Really? Woo-wee! <laughs> that was good. That was good. And also, about the same time, uh, farmers would come by with a wagon, uh-huh. and they would have, most of them would have two great big barrels. Uh-huh. One barrel would be full of sausage, uh-huh. and the next barrel would be full of ham. Uh-huh. And we managed on the ham, we'd get that, and put it in the wash house, hang it up, and mom would get some, a lot of sausage. And we'd have sausage and ham and gravy. Woo. Uh, and, uh, well, what were your parents like? What was what? What were your parents like? My parents? Yeah. Both of you. What were both of your parents like? Well, they didn't do it. Well, tell me. What were their names? Uh, well, mine was, uh, my mother was Lucy. And they called her Lucy. And Lou? Lou. Okay. And my dad was uh, Joe Farrell. Okay. And uh, now he died when he was only, I say, fifty six years old. He was an oil okay. field worker. Okay. Okay. Is that, you know, is that where they came from? Was oil money or what? I mean, oil <laughs> business. We Not didn't money. Have any money. Either. No, I know that, but <laughs> oil business, shall we yeah, say? Yeah. Yeah, he was always. And what about your mom? Well, she never did work because Dad didn't want her to. Uh-huh. And because uh, she, she had three kids, so she just stayed home and took care of them. Okay. What about your parents? Well, uh, my dad worked for the, as I say, worked for the railroad. That was his what he wanted to be his main job and became his main job as the time passed. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Mom never did work. Uh, she stayed home and most women did back in those days. Yeah. And uh, so consequently, you lived off of everything but money. <laughs> you, you lived off of work, traded off for something else, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, we never did have have very very much money but by the same token I was never hungry uh, I was never cold uh, I, I wore a lot of patched clothing uh-huh. but every, every kid in the crane wore patched clothing uh-huh. uh, the nice thing about being poor during the, uh, the, that kind of depression which was a depression uh, was the fact that Everybody would have the same situation. Right. 
and nobody had any money, so you didn't worry about it. Money didn't mean that much back in those days. I can see that. If, if you could get food on the table, every, every, every house, ours and all up the rest of the block, every house had a great big, I say it's big for this, garden. Okay. And most of them were pretty good gardeners. Uh-huh. So consequently, you, you had apples or potatoes and corn and, and all that kind of stuff right out of your garden. Uh-huh. And then you had enough, I can remember now, Dad digging holes at, at the end of the garden, and it'd be pretty deep. And then he would go down the potato row and get the potatoes and throw the potatoes in that hole and then throw in some straw. Uh-huh. And then he'd go get some more potatoes, throw them in that hole, throw in some straw, cover it up with dirt. Uh-huh. Then in the wintertime, when they needed some, potato, some potatoes for potato soup, he'd go out there and uncover them. And, <laughs> and, but uh, he was a pretty good gardener. We had a, and we had, uh, oh, Lordy. We had sauerkraut that you would not believe. <laughs> Dad come home one time, and he had a, two sacks of, uh, of uh, cabbage, and we made 100 quarts of sauerkraut. We had sauerkraut every meal that winter, and I loved it. Mashed potatoes and sauerkraut, that's the best thing you can possibly get. <laughs> but... Uh, but we never, as I say, we were never, never hungry. But we were lucky. Uh, the trains would go by, and they'd be loaded with hobos, and they'd come to the, the back door. Uh-huh. And back in those days, even though they were hungry, the first thing they would say, "Do you have something we can do?" Okay. And usually, we didn't usually because uh, that took care of everything. But by the same token. Mom always had something uh-huh. for them to eat. Yeah. And uh, we never did have a bit of problem with them. And they were just looking. No, they, were they were looking for people back then. Uh, the, the we lived. A, I can't. I don't even remember the name of the street. <laughs> anyway, <coughs> we had a big cornfield between our house and the Presbyterian Church. And it, it, that corn patch is where Dr. Capetti built his home. Okay. And in the wintertime, of course, that corn patch would be cut down. And about once a month, you'd see a, a, a big truck pull up. And it would have commodities. Okay. Well, you would think at a time like that, that people would be knocking people over to get those commodities. And you know there wouldn't be, I don't think I ever saw as many as 10 in the line. Really? So. And so people, if they, people didn't want you to know right. that they absolutely had nothing. Uh-huh. And I don't know how they did got, but maybe they, Maybe the truck went to their house. I don't know, and I don't. But back then, 
it wasn't like it is now. I mean, now, now you have a truck like that pull up, and the first one to pull up would pull up in a Mercedes. Oh yeah, no doubt about and, it. You know, and get get what you get, get get it over with. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, uh, we had a lot of fun. No money. Uh, I, that was my closest. I, I grew up with kids on the street. Nobody back in those days, people got in the same place and they stayed there. And you knew Well, who were some of the kids? Well, who were the kids that you enjoyed? The Hunters. The Hunters was a bunch of kids. They had a bunch of them. And then uh, the, uh, uh, across the street was, uh, oh God. Wanda Jean Hemphill and the, the Hunters. The Hunters had a big family. They lived in the last house on the same street we lived. And uh, Bud was just a little older than me. And Josephine was my age. I went to school with her all 12 years. Uh -huh. And she married Sherman Lee uh, yeah, and he got killed in the service, and she had two children, huh. and she married Bob Kincaid, and they, anyway, uh, she had a hard, hard life. She lost her first husband in the war real early, and she, I, I felt she was more like a sister to me because. I didn't have many brothers or sisters. Sure. And, but but anyway, what I was talking about, Bud, <laughs> he, you know, they started the draft for the war. Well, actually, not for the war, but they started the draft before the United States got into the war. Sure. And they, they was going, and you'd go, and you'd stay a, a, a year, and then you got out. Uh-huh. Well... Some of the guys from the class that graduated out of high school just before I did, because 1943, when the war started, we were seniors. Okay. And 1941, what am I saying? I went in and yeah. mm -hmm. uh We were seniors. And Bud was, had already been drafted. And they took him to... New Zealand, right off the bat. <laughs> really? And he got over there, and he found a wife, <laughs> and he married her. And all during the war, he never did come back. But when the war was over, he brought his wife and daughter back to Missouri. And he took them. He worked for the railroad, and he took them to Connor, Arkansas. <laughs> Well, she just wasn't real happy <laughs> with Calder, Arkansas. Yeah. So she decided that she couldn't take it any longer. <laughs> and she headed back toward New Zealand. <laughs> and Bud went with her. And he never really? did come back. Oh, wow. Never did come back. That's amazing. Uh, well, so tell me about getting drafted in the Army. How did that work? The what? Getting in the Army, drafted in the Army. 
Getting drafted? Yeah. Well, I, I didn't want to be drafted, but so, <laughs> so I was going to school at uh, Central College in Fayette, Missouri, okay. and I looked at my grades, and boy, I knew that I had to get in the service someplace <laughs> and get in quick. So I come home, and went to the Navy or Army, and they wouldn't take me. Really? They, at that time, to get in the service, you had to be drafted. Wow. Because they wanted to control how the men, where you went. I mean, it was all going one wrong direction, you know. Uh-huh. So that that didn't last long, but but at that time you had to be drafted. So they said our best advice is you if you want to go in a hurry, just go down and ask your draft board. Okay. So I went down and talked to my draft board. I said, but could you take me? Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. So the next time the draft board went out, uh, my mother and dad took me down to took me down to Galena, put me on a bus, and I told them I'll be back in two or three days. And they said, well, good. And we went up to Fort Leavenworth. And we got up there in the middle of the night. And we got off the bus. And they took us into the barracks. And they said, there's a bunch of cots, a bunch of mattresses over there. You go over and get your mattress, pick you out a bunk, and get in it. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that just didn't give me a real good idea that I was too interested in the army. Right. <laughs> so the next morning we got up. And they started giving us examination. Now I mean it was a long, long line that you went through, and I got to the end of the line, and this uh, fellow come over had a navy uniform on it. He said, would you like to go to the Navy? I said, I sure would. <laughs> and he said, well, i got to give you one more test. And he said, if you pass it, you can go. So I went over. It was a colorblind test. Okay. And I passed it. He told me to go down. They had a bus waiting down there. It was going to take me into Kansas City. <laughs> so we went into Kansas City, and we went up to the recruiting station. And there must have been 50 of us or so. And they had us all raise our right hand. So they swore us in. They said, now you are part of the Navy. You belong to the Navy. Okay. Well, that began to sound kind of serious. You belong. <laughs> anyway, that's, they, uh, they handed out some chips. You could take it to any restaurant you wanted to and in Kansas City, and they would accept it. So that you could eat, we had to have two meals, we had to eat lunch and, and supper. And said, now you be down at the railroad terminal at 7 o'clock, ready to get on a train. Okay. And I said, that doesn't sound like that I'm going home. <laughs> they said, no. I said, you're going to the Navy. <laughs> well, don't, don't. They put me on a train. I said, could you tell me where this train was going? They said, you're going to Farragut, Idaho. Okay. Idaho. And I said, Farragut, Idaho. <laughs> I hadn't heard of it in my life. So we rode for, I guess, three days on that train. Uh -huh. And it was, we had, uh, they had 
sleepers. That's what was nice. We were comfortable, and they fed us well. And we got, they went up north and went along the Canadian border, and there was a lot of snow, and man, I saw pheasants. I thought, man, if I can ever get out of here, I'll come back here pheasant. <laughs> and we ended up in Farragut, Idaho. And that was just north. Farragut, Idaho was a Navy camp just north of Coeur d'Alene. Okay. And Coeur d'Alene is probably 50, 75 miles from the northern border. Okay. And when we got off that got off that train, we got off in snow up to our waists. <laughs> and I was there from February the 3rd, well, no, February the 7th, I guess, till sometime in in May, and never did see the ground. Really? No, we trained in the, they had big concert huts, we trained in that, and their swimming pools were all in concert huts. And uh -huh. The only thing, the only clear we could, they could, once in a while, the snow had keep it off the road. There was five different camps, and they each had a road around them, and that road, they tried to keep that road clear. So occasionally, when we would practice marching, occasionally that road would be clear enough that we could get out on okay. the road. But very seldom that we could get really? out on the road. But they had great big wide paths through that snow going across and at each end. The chow hall is at one end, the commissary was at the other end. And uh, that was a, and anyway, we got up there, and I thought, well, we'll get a nice rest here. And they said, take off all your clothes. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I've been through this once before. <coughs> Pack your clothes. And I thought, man, this is, this is going a little fast. <laughs> and they finally got us lined up. And I never saw anything quite like it. They, they had this long line. Uh, not, not a man, uh, just a counter. And you started down that line. They had, you, you put your feet down. They looked down, took out a pair of boots, a pair of shoes, go. <laughs> Boy, I'm telling you. They fit you with clothes that you would not believe. We had dress uniforms, we had work uniforms, we had dungarees, we had blankets, we had, you name it. I never saw so many clothes in my life. <laughs> At the end of it was this great big sea bag that they gave us, and we started putting that in there. But darn near all the clothes were fairly close fit. They'd fit enough sailors and sure. through there that they knew what they were doing. <laughs> Anyway, then we, you, you got back to the barracks and you had to stencil all your clothes. Uh -huh. Well, that got to be a job too, but you had to stencil them all. And then they gave you your first duty. And my first duty was to keep the furnace going in the okay. barracks. And they said when you Get through, secure the watch. Okie dokie. <laughs> I'll secure the watch. 
And while you're on your watch, you will memorize your 865-6129. That was my Navy number. 865-6129. And so I started throwing coal in that furnace. And I was supposed to secure the watch at 11 o'clock that night, I think it was. And 11 o'clock came. Nobody was there. 12 o'clock came. And nobody was there. I kept on throwing the coal in that furnace. <laughs> and two o'clock in the morning came and nobody was there. Seven o'clock the next morning, here come a guy, Hackley, where in the hell are you? <laughs> I said, I'm on the furnace where I'm supposed to be. You're supposed to secure the watch. I said, what does it mean secure the watch? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> So what does it mean to secure the watch? What? What? What do you mean to secure the watch? Yeah. Well, you shut the furnace down and quit throwing in coal. <laughs> That's all. And it was a nice inside watch. And you had your outside watches. You'd walk around on the outside of your barracks, just going around in circles and circles. But uh, it was. Uh, I, I enjoy. I enjoyed every minute boot camp. I enjoyed. Boot camp, you would not believe how I enjoyed boot camp. And it was giving me things to do that I had never had an opportunity to try. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's right. And I never would have had if I'd have stayed in Stone County. <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. And uh, I only got in trouble, bad trouble, I thought. I thought there might be a hanging. I thought maybe you wouldn't know me. Uh, when we flew a, a mission and come back in, This is my home for wow, 50 years. That's amazing. Uh, and my office was right up here. In the in the nose. Right in the nose. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading. I brought that in. That's the only two guns on that plane that face forward when you land. The other two turrets, moving guns to the rear, and then you got two 50 caliber machine guns out the side. But anyway, we went on this. and come back and when you went out you fired the guns to make sure they were working uh -huh. maybe just you know five or ten rounds through each one of them and when you come back you have to clean those guns so you take them down one at a time and clean one then put it back and then you take the other one that back clean it and put it back and since I had those forward guns there 
I had to put, just before we would land, I'd pull those barrels out real quick and put rags in the end of them to keep the salt water from flying up in there. Sometimes the spray would come over, over that dirt. So I did that, and just as soon as we landed, the little boat that come up by the side of the plane to take us ashore was there. I told my another artisman there uh, to make sure before he put the, the gun covers on my gun to pull the plugs. And he said he would, and I said, that's good, and I trusted him, and he's a, he was a man. <laughs> and anyway, two days later, another crew was flying our plane. And all of a sudden, we get word that that plane is coming back. They hadn't been out 30 days, 30 hours, not 30 minutes. And the reason it's coming back, they fired the bow turret. And the Dunsey locked up. Well, that meant that he's bringing it back because of something that I did. <laughs> and I could just see this. I thought there's no doubt about it. They'll have a, a hanging on the end of we talk. Because that's kind of a bad deal when they have to bring a plan back. And so your plane was the, the PBM-3 Mariner. Is that right? PBM, that's right. The Mariner. Yeah. 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 And um, so when you went to Idaho, then what was the next stop? We went to what? Idaho. Oh, Idaho. Next stop, I, this is where I made a my critical mistake. <laughs> they, okay, uh, I want to hear about that. Okay. Well, they, they, uh, Said they gave us a a test to see you know if we knew our right hand from our left hand. Okay. And it, it wasn't too hard to pass. I didn't think <laughs> anyway. They said if you pass this test, you, you run a good chance of getting your choice of what you would like to do in the navy. Okay. Well, you know, I'd been quail hunting and been around guns all my life. And, Man, I thought that would be fun to have that kind of gun. Uh -huh. that, sure. that, that would be something. And I decided I wanted to be an aviation ordinanceman. Okay. And that meant you handled all the firearms. You handled the torpedoes, the depth charges, anything that went boom, <laughs> you, you handled it. And you, you had to keep them clean and keep them working. You had to study the church, you had to keep the church going. Anyway, lo and behold, I got what I wanted. Uh -huh. I should have said I wanted to be a mechanic <laughs> or I wanted to be a, a metalsmith. I don't have a friend in the world that has a 50 caliber machine. <laughs> I can't help anybody. They don't even I don't have one that has a 30 caliber machine. And so I really wasted my time in the service learning a job because <laughs> there's just not a lot of call well, for it. you know, but you had a major part in it. That's well, I, I enjoyed it, uh, but I, I would have loved, I love to be around airplanes too. And uh, I don't know if you remember 
uh, oh, what was his first name? Gatton. He was Harlan Gatton? Well, Harlan's son. Okay. No, it wasn't Harlan. Alan. Oh, what's his? Anyway, he's about my age in high school. And he, he was a, uh, he took aviation mechanics and he got a heck of a good job and stayed with them long enough. I mean, he was with them, I think, for 30 years up at Kansas City uh, with the uh, American Airlines or some airline uh-huh. as a mechanic and become a supervisor. And he, he ended up with a good job. And as I say, there's no good jobs for, <laughs> for, for me. But anyway, I enjoyed it. Uh, and if you ever have any problem with your shooting gun, you let me know. I can take it down blindfolded, put it back blindfolded. Well, okay, so after Idaho, then where did you go? Well, that, that was down in Oklahoma. Okay. That was down in Oklahoma. I went to med- down at Norman, just, just south of the university. Okay. And, uh, didn't, meet, didn't meet her, no, though. No, I that didn't know her. Pleasure. I had no idea about her. And I was down there, and after we... Now this is this is bragging just a little bit. Now I'll explain it. Uh, Brag away. Uh, this is the. This was twice that my mother and father come down to Oklahoma, and that was when they had the gas rationing going on during the uh-huh. war, and you had to go down and see Earl Williams, and if you had a son in the service, and you was going to see that son, he'd see that you got gas stamps. Okay. And they got gas stamps and come down to Oklahoma to see me. And they come down from graduation, and I was no, so happy because they was wondering how I was doing. And the state of uh, the city of Oklahoma City was giving honor students uh, silver rings. One day they called me to come up to the captain's office, and I said, "What's I'm, what's what's I'm doing there?" <laughs> and they said, "Well, we want to see you." So I went up to the captain's office, and they said, uh, "Pick you out a silver ring." Okay. I said, "What do you mean?" They said, "Well, you're the honor student of of uh, aviation ordnance this time." Okay. And they said, "We want you to stay." And be an instructor. Okay. I thought, oh, Lord, no way. No <laughs> way. I want to get out of here. And I, I begged and I pleaded. And they finally realized that I wasn't going to be a good instructor because <laughs> I wasn't. So then they sent me <coughs> down to Purcell, Oklahoma. Okay. And if you've been to Oklahoma in the August, uh-huh. when it's real dry, uh, you will appreciate the fact that when we were down at Purcell, we were far enough out in the country that we never put any clothes on, <laughs> except our really? underwear. That's right. Wow. Because it was so dusty and dirty and hot. And we was doing nothing but exercising for, for four weeks uh-huh. and shooting guns. Uh-huh. Man, I had a ball. I mean <laughs> to tell you, they started you out with shotguns, uh-huh. just ordinary trap dealing. Uh-huh. Then they, they put you in the back of a car, and they had the shotguns. 
and the top. And then they put you in a tub that acted kind of like a turret. You actually wasn't touching the gun. You were using the, the triggers was on the guideline. And they, they just keep throwing those things over at you. And you had a guy standing beside you just loading that gun as fast as he could load it. <laughs> and that was, was a bell. <laughs> then they took you out and they had a way over on the far side with a hill and they had an eight track. And they had a little old car over there that they could put stuff on, and they'd start that car around the, the track. Uh-huh. And you'd fire at that thing. Uh-huh. And then they put you in the back of a truck and took you down the road while that thing was going that way. And you'd fire at that. I never fired so much ammunition in my life. <laughs> it was a ball. I really enjoyed that. And so after Oklahoma, where did you go? What was but that? But uh, uh, that, that's one reason that I think that I like the Navy. I did get promotions as fast as I could get them. Oh, good. Uh, if I'd have made one more promotion before the war ended, it would have made me a chief. Wow. And if I'd have made chief, I think I would have just stayed right in the service. <laughs> but uh, you probably wouldn't have never wanted that. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. Wanda, I, I met her before before I got out of the service. Okay. And uh, she probably wouldn't have gone, though. She probably wouldn't want to be a, <laughs> a Navy wife. I mean, I can understand that. But anyway, that 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 happened. and, and uh, So after Oklahoma, where was next? Pardon? After Oklahoma, where was next? Well, after Oklahoma, well, I went down to... Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. And we got to fly in what they used to call the Black Cats. They were uh, they were seaplanes, and that was the first flying that we actually got to do. Okay. And that was a thrill, of course, for an old country boy getting to fly <laughs> in a Black Cat. Had you flown in a plane before that? Had I what? Had you flown in a plane before that? No, no. And anyway, uh, we trained there. I had a, uh, my pilot down there was a, a Marine pilot. And uh, he was a great guy. I really enjoyed him. And What so, was his name? You know, I can't remember it. <laughs> I can't remember it. Uh, Dale, that, that's another dang story. I, I'll... <laughs> I am the world's worst, <laughs> and I, I regret it. I really regret it, because that is one thing that a person ought to have, because people like to hear their own name. <laughs> and I, I'm the world's worst when it comes to that. I've I've had friends I've had all my life, and I get ready to introduce them, <laughs> and my mind just absolutely freezes. <coughs> One time at church, they said, Bob, would you introduce these? We've got some guests coming to church today. <laughs> no way, Jose. No. But anyway, uh, I went down to Pensacola, Florida, and or Jacksonville, rather, the first yeah. time. And we was down in Jacksonville. We were flying. We was flying the Black Cats. And we was down there about three months, I guess. And they decided to send me to, to San Francisco. And so I came back. They gave me a little stop, and I got to stop in 
in Crane, and that was the first time I'd been home since I left on February the 3rd. Okay. And, and so I was home for that, and then Mom and Dad took me to Kansas City to catch the train up there. Uh-huh. And that's the first time and only time that I ever saw my dad cry. Really? And, uh, tell me about that. Huh? What do you, tell me about that. What happened? Well, he, well, uh, he knew uh, he wasn't going to, there's people getting killed, you know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and especially in airplanes. Airplanes didn't have the, that's one thing you didn't hear about all the airplanes that crashed in the, uh, anyway, uh, that's the only time I, he took me down to the train and he said, shook my hand. He said, son, be careful. And he turned around and started crying. Uh, and so then when you got to San Francisco, where was that? Well, in San Francisco, uh, they didn't actually send me to San Francisco. I just, that was my destination. But I went to Alameda, okay. Naval Air Station, Alameda. And we got to Naval Air Station in Alameda, and lo and behold, they didn't have a thing for us to do. <laughs> so they sent us to Modesto. Okay. And we got over to Modesto, and they didn't have a thing for us to do. <laughs> so lo and behold, they made us MPs. <laughs> really? And they, they sent us into Modesto, and the only thing we would do, we'd get a hold of the drunks and get them on the bus and send them back to the base. Okay. And we did that for, oh, maybe a month to six weeks. And uh, all of a sudden they called us and said, come back to San, to Alameda. And we went back to Alameda. And what are we going to do? They said, you have been assigned to a PBM squadron. Okay. Well, when they said PBM, I had no idea what they were talking about, and that was what they was talking about. Yeah, and what what is that? What does that stand for? Pardon? That, that is... What does PBM stand v, for? V, V, VPB. Okay. The V stands, don't ask me why, it doesn't make a damn bit of sense. It stands for heavier than air. Okay. Patrol bomber. Okay. The PB is patrol bomber. Uh-huh. And... So we were assigned to that squadron, and they took us down and issued flight gear. Okay. Now, you talk about dudes. <laughs> we were dudes. Man, when we got that flight jacket, that leather flight jacket. <laughs> Do you still have it? Oh, no. No, I wore it completely out. <laughs> and, boy, we had, we had our... our Emblem. Let's see. No. No, he wore that jacket up. <laughs> I wore that thing up. Okay, well, let me take a picture of that. Yeah, I'm going to give it to you here in just a second. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. That was a one and I had that one and I had that one during our the reunion we posted. Oh, when was that? 
Well, that was in 1995. Okay. And well, I thought it was one of those St. Louis. But anyway, I got in the squadron. We got the flight jackets, and, and we trained in Alameda. Uh huh. And then all of a sudden they said, "Well, boys, you've got all the training you're going to get." So they, we had to go to Hawaii, and we went to uh, Oahu. Okay. Island and over on the north side, and it was a marine base, and we were there, and uh, all of a sudden they started taking our planes away from us one at a time, and we didn't know what they were doing. Uh-huh. And come to find out that they were fitting them for JATO. Jet assisted takeoff, which was absolutely a, a wonder, but that come under aviation orders too. I mean aviation. Oh Lordy, come under. I can't even think about. I must have been lying to you all along. <laughs> Well, I can't even think what I was. Well, I mean, it generally. I was a. Ordnance man. Ordnance man. Now, that come under aviation ordnance. That's. Anyway, it, it was a jet assisted takeoff. Uh, out on the ocean, especially if you have to land in open sea or take off on open sea, uh, it might be as slick as possible. I mean, there won't be a, a ripple, but you, you've got swells. Okay. And they come up and down, <laughs> up and down. And that's why they, they, they didn't have a jet assisted takeoff on when that, they rescued that fella. But anyway, we had it. And that was, we were the first squadron to have jet assisted takeoff. Okay. And, uh, then we went out and we trained a while and then they sent us, we had one crew in, while we were there that took up a plane and they was, had reworked the engine on it and they couldn't run it up real fast. And they went out and they had engine problem on the good engine and that new engine that they'd worked on didn't have enough power to keep them up, so they crashed. Huh. And we had 18 crews, and that was one crew. And they went out to look for them, and they found where they crashed. And we found, out of the 11, we found two. Huh. One was alive, and one was dead. Mm. And the one that was, both of them was in a, place in the plane that they, neither one of them should have got out, but huh. that one guy got out and was alive and they put him in a plane to fly again and he just couldn't take it, so we just lost him. Uh -huh. But we had one buried in, in Hawaii, had a funeral there, anyway. Uh -huh. But that's, uh, that's, that's past, but that's, that's the only crew that we lost all of them. Huh. And, uh, but where I'm at, I'm a, you got me where now. 
well, we, we, we formed a squadron. <coughs> yes. And so they, they sent us out, and we went out uh, uh, from, from uh, Hawaii. We went to Kwajalein, and then we went up to Inouye a little bit, and then we come back to Kwajalein. And we was flying, as I say, we was we had one plane that would fly to Wake every day. They had got Wake isolated, and we sent a plane up there every day to make sure uh, they would be sending ships in. And they'd send a hospital ship in, but when we'd see a hospital ship, we'd notify a, a destroyer, and it'd come alongside and, and board them and make sure that they didn't have anything in there that they could eat. Or <laughs> And they had eaten all the goonie birds. On that island, and, <laughs> uh, they were starving to death. But they had a they had a, a an odd system. We used to go up there and fly around, and you fly around and around, just watching, making sure nobody was coming in. You'd fly around and around, around and around. Oh man! All at once, that island would just oh boom. They'd really? fire every gun they had. At you all at the same time. Wow. <laughs> and they was the poorest damn shots that I ever saw. <laughs> anyway, after that, you could just go as close as you wanted. They, 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 they said, that one big deal. And they did that almost every time that you go up there. They'd fire that one big shot. But we never did have anybody shot down. <laughs> and, uh, it, uh, so would you say that most of the people you were with came back home okay? Yes, okay. absolutely. We lost we lost one one entire crew. Well, we lost one entire crew except one. We uh -huh. lost ten, 10 men. Now some crews, uh, we had we had twelve men in our crew. We had uh, our extra man was a uh, worked with metal. He was a metalsmith, uh -huh. and he took care of when you got hole punctured in or when you. Knock rivets out. When we were at Iwo Jima, it was almost a, a morning. Everybody would get on the, still on the ship that hadn't gone out to the plane, would line up to watch them try to take off because it was so hard to get off. And you'd be betting, are they going to get off this time or not? Sometimes they had to take three or four runs. And if they, if they didn't make it on the first time, they had to wait to reload their jet-assisted takeoff, and when that jet-assisted takeoff fired, I mean, your plane went, really? and you were just hoping when, when the dang thing quit, which was about 30 seconds later, that the plane had speed enough that it's going to fly, uh, but wow. uh, it, it, it would take those things up, wow. but anyway, coming back, then you begin to wonder, how many are they going to get, and we had plane after plane, uh, knock out rivets and holes in their plane and they'd have to fly it down to to uh, to Saipan and, and get it repaired and then bring it back uh -huh. and uh, but uh, sitting out on that wing at night I only had one night watch and you, you had a 50 uh, a, a Thompson submachine gun it made you think uh -huh. of some of the movies you saw yeah you know and uh, man I, you talk about a killer, we were a killer. Because in Saipan, at Saipan, those 
Japanese would would fly out or swim out there and throw in hand grenades. Really? So, in fact, we had to take some uh, some of our planes out to loan them because they run out of planes. They're <laughs> sinking so many. So we put an uh, armed guard on our plane every night, and that was kind of scary because it, at night you'd get flashes of light to those flame floors over on the beach you're going, and they would scream just like a, a girl screaming. And then they had the big flamethrowers that was mounted on tanks, and they'd take those up to the any cave that they found, uh -huh. and, and it would either burn them or suck out all the oxygen. Well, because... You really are saying that the flamethrowers were the most deadly thing that... They had. were. They were. Well, yeah, they were the most deadly. Uh, I don't guess it matters, you know, but... You know, and, and I will say this. Those guys that had the flamethrowers on their back, they had the individual flamethrower, and then they had the, something like the tanks. Uh, and those individual flamethrowers, they were targets. I the, can see the, that. The Japanese didn't want anything to do with those flames. And man, when they see somebody with a tank on their back, they were targets. <laughs> and it was dangerous. It was, got a lot of, and uh, you felt so sorry for these fellows because it, it was awful. Very and it, you, you, know, you, don't, you don't like to see once in a while. We only saw this once. And when they, somebody runs out on fire, that's... Uh -huh. I, I don't know if you remember, probably before your time, but there was a little girl, and I think it had a lot to do with us getting rid of the flamethrowers. Huh. There was a little girl in, in uh, Life magazine. I think it was almost a full-page picture. I can just see her now. She was about eight or nine, and she was coming down the road crying. Oh, I mean, I mean you could just tell she was extreme pain she didn't have any clothes on they had been burned off and I guess and I guess she had scars all over her back but oddly enough that little girl lived that little girl got married and that little girl had children wow and but that that, that that one picture, I think that that probably did away with, with flamethrowers <laughs> because the public just could not stand it. Mm -hmm. And I think she got probably, I think she got caught. They not only had the flamethrowers, but the bombers bombed uh -huh. with napalm bombs. <laughs> and when they, that napalm bomb had hit, yeah, I mean, like the fire bricks. would just go, shoo, yeah. And... I think she got caught probably in, in something. Oh, gee, man. Oh. Well, so tell me about your relationship with the Presbyterian Church in Crane. Well, someplace around here. I don't know where it's at, and I wouldn't even know where to start looking or I'd find it for you. I'm on, on the Crater Roll. You're on the what? Cradle Roll. Oh, Cradle Roll. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I, I was on the cradle roll, and, and uh, my mother, my father, well, my grandfather and grandmother and great-grandfather and great-grandmother were charter members. Okay. Uh, 
mom didn't join because she didn't want to join until dad joined. Okay. But when the war finally started and she worried about enough about her own son getting up, <laughs> she joined the church. But anyway, I joined the, uh, the church when I was 12 years old. Okay. So that's been what? It's been a couple of years. Eighty yeah. some years. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's. Well, tell me about what does it mean to you? What does that Presbyterian Church mean? Well, the Presbyterian Church to me is home. The Presbyterian Church to me is family. Uh, that is the one group of people that I think that anybody in that church, if they would really ask any one person that they needed help. I don't think he would have a bit of problem of getting it. What do you think, Wanda? I think the same thing. We, we don't seem like anything. It's well, uh, the, the, the church, especially after we lost Claudia, uh, it gave us something to hang on to. Uh -huh. And... Uh, it's just making me sick the way it's going right now. I don't see how it can last, Dale. I mean, just because the numbers or what? Numbers. Well, you know, not just the numbers, but you need a certain amount of people. We've got a lot of women in there uh -huh. and that are living on Social Security. Uh -huh. And they just don't have a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> and I don't know how few people can keep that thing going. And I can remember even when we had a hundred people at one time. We had over a hundred people at one time. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we was getting help from the Presbytery back then. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know how we can keep it going, but I, I hope it can. I pray for it every night, but it doesn't seem like it's working. I've been praying for it. <laughs> Uh, well, but I'll tell you, that, boy, it, it tickle, tickles me to see your family all there. Yeah, that oh, was <laughs> You know, I'll tell you, I don't care who comes or what they do. <laughs> people like to go where there's people. Sure. Oh, yeah. And if you go into church and there's one over here, one over here, mm -hmm. and we were beginning to get just that way. Uh -huh. Well, as I say, thanks. Thank the Lord for your family coming back. Uh, I was real, real dependent that, that the maze would take over. Because, but uh, Tanner's got a job, you know, that takes him away from. Sure. We, uh, our problem is, our kids, young kids, just don't want to live in Crane, and I don't blame them. I mean, they can't make a yeah, living in Crane. I get it. And uh, I don't know how. I told one, I don't know how in the world we ever made a living in Crane. <laughs> I had a fellow one time, he said. Before Walmart, that's for sure. Yeah. Oh, Walmart ruined Crane. It, it, uh, but uh, anyway. But anyway. But just so some final thoughts. I mean, what would you like to impart to the next generation? No, about whatever. Oh. Your call. Well, I think I would do the same thing that, that the evangelists did. I think I'd try to tell people. In fact, I, 
Well, I've done two things with my kids. I think they think I'm kidding them, and I'm not. But I've, I've been telling them, don't try. And I'm serious. I am as well. Don't try to get to be old. Okay. <laughs> Just don't do it. It's not, it's, it's, it's not the golden age. Uh-huh. You may think it is, and they will try to convince you that it is, but it is not. And I've been trying to tell my kids, now, I don't know what you want to do. I don't care what you want to do. But if you've got the money, I said, don't go borrow it. But if you've got the money, or when you get it, do it. Uh-huh. Do it right don't then. wait to say, well, as soon as we retire, we'll do this. Uh-huh. Uh, Wanda and I went to Hawaii on our 50th wedding anniversary. We had a good time. We really enjoyed ourselves. We had a good time. Sure. We watched all those people down there swimming and doing all that stuff. And we watched them bicycling and we watched them doing all that, coming off the mountain bicycling. And we watched all that and we really enjoyed But at, at that time, we were seven, I was 73 uh-huh. and she was 70. Uh-huh. And I told her, I said, you know, if we had to come... 20 years earlier, we'd have been down there having all the fun and people have been watching us. Right. Don't wait till you get old to have your fun because it just doesn't work out that way. There's always something else you're going to yeah. do. So I've been trying to convince my kids that, that don't work to get old. I mean, it's just flat not working. I, I realize you don't have a lot of control over it and you, you have to take it the way it comes. And it's it's uh, and uh, you, through your life you'll meet a lot of fine people, and it's amazing how many fine people you'll pass up because you don't realize how fine they are. Yeah. And I, I tell you, uh, I get so disgusted with some of these people we see now, and then I'll turn right around and I have to say that I didn't realize people were as nice as they are. Yeah. That's one thing. One one wonderful thing about getting old it's amazing how many people when they see us coming and I hate it because they know that I know that because we look old <laughs> but I don't think you look your age they'll, 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 they'll grab the door and they'll do everything in the world to help you uh-huh. and it's, it's, it's flat amazing how many and how many young people that you don't expect it from? Right. In fact, I'm always they kidding them every time they open the door. I say, well, I got some doors at home if you want. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it is. And we've got a lot of, there's a lot of good kids in this world. Uh-huh. And uh, we've got to realize that. I know there's a lot that's not worth a darn. But yeah, we've got a lot of good kids. And I'll tell you, that's one thing I've always said about the Presbyterian kids. And I don't know why. We never did have a bunch of kids right. in the church. We've had some fairly good groups, but we never had a real big bunch of kids. Mm-hmm. As I've often said, we didn't have many kids, but the ones we had were all outstanding. Mm-hmm. And I believe that to the yeah. this day. Uh, they all got educations, or most of them did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, these others, I know, they, they, they go farming. That, that's what they should do. I mean, right? You know, oh yeah. yeah I, I have absolutely. That's as great as, but but it does make their church stay big. Oh yeah. They stay with their church and have children, and 
And I'm all for them because they've got to be there. But I wish we just had something that our kids could stay home. <laughs> and uh, I was talking to a friend of mine that I met accidentally, and I don't know why I call him a friend, but he, he is a, he, he lives in, up in Iowa. Come in. What's the name? I came to get my huh? son. You come to what? Your son. Well, he, he's going to stay here. <laughs> We're you having a good time. Oh, my goodness. Well, so what were you saying about your friend? Oh. Well, he's going to be 65. Okay. And uh, He's the youngest. Pardon? He's a youngin. He's yeah. a youngin. He really is. That's why I said I don't know why he's my friend. I was just sitting in the restaurant one day, and and he come, and he come right back where I was sitting, and, and I had met him once before, but I just bared it. It was you know just how do you do, and he come back here, shook my hand, sat down, and we had breakfast and talked, and I said, Are you going to go play golf with these young people up here? No. No, he said, I just come here for breakfast. Yeah. Next Friday, he was there. Every Friday since. He's come to when he's home. Wow. He, and he'll come up here. and He never comes in, though. I, I'm a little bit peeved at him because he never comes empty-handed. No. <laughs> and I told him, I said, you know, friends don't come in that way. <laughs> friends come in just... To see I can't you. tell you how many of those And I want you to be a, a, a real friend. And I don't want you bringing. You, you don't have to pay to get in, <laughs> into this house. But he's, I think where I really hit this, you never know what turns somebody on. And he has a, a bulldog called Gracie. Really? And I've known Gracie since she was born, yeah. practically. And that's their baby. I brag on that dog. It's just like bra they don't have any children. So it's like bragging on their children. And I think he likes that so well that we've become friends. But he would do absolutely. He's a, uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but going to, to uh, Cape Fair, uh -huh. just before you get to Cape Fair on the, on the right left-hand side, there's a tool and die. Off place, well, he owns that, mm -hmm. or he did. He sold it. He's retired now, but he sold it. But he owned that when when I first met him, and uh, he brought that down from Iowa. His his father was a tool and die, uh -huh. and he brought that down. And we went down to see him. The first time I went down to see him, walked in and he had that dog on his lap. <laughs> and, anyway, he said, "Oh, you come at the wrong time." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "All my workers." All my workers are out uh, <laughs> on a smoke. And I said, well, that's, that's all right. Well, we went around and looked. And I saw his machine and all the things was working. I never did see any people. Come to find out. <laughs> come to find out that he didn't have but one worker. <laughs> and that was a, one of his cousins or something's kin to him. But by the same token, he was putting out a, a starter for old cars. Uh -huh. And it was going boom, 
Boom. He was putting out one starter every second. Oh, my okay. God. Oh, wow. And that, that guy, one guy was doing it. Wow. And those starters were going of all places to Mexico. Mexico. Really? Oh, wow. And oh, he, he sipped those out by the car loads, by the truck loads. <laughs> and if you get on the computer, he, he made some money. Well, that's good. Yes, that is. But anyway, yeah, he's uh, he's he's a, his 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 mother just passed away. She was 102. Oh, you may have a you may be up there in the age range by the time we get started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, is there, is there any last words? Anything you want to say? Well, Dale, well, you haven't told me much. And, <laughs> oh, and, and, as I say. What I told you might be true, or, <laughs> or, or might be embellished a little. <laughs> it's, uh, well, that's fine. I enjoyed but, uh, it very much. We'll never let the truth we've get, been in, the, real get lucky. in the way of a good story, Bob. Yeah, <laughs> we, we've been lucky. We, we've had a few hard times, <laughs> as everybody does. But outside of that, uh, we've been real lucky. We've had a lot of, you know, do, do you know Jessica Hudson? Yeah, yeah. She was here yesterday, and she started leaving. She sat down and started talking. She said she doesn't have a friend. Huh. Well. And no, I said, what do you mean you don't have a friend? A close, a well, she just doesn't have anybody to go out with or do anything with. Or huh. But she loves us. And I said, well, you've got more friends than you think you've got. I said, well, you're friends. Yeah, I said, no, we can't go out with you, though. No. Uh, but uh, you've got friends. But when you get to thinking about it, that would be an awful thing to say. Don't have any friends. Yeah, mm -hmm. it would. That would be a bad Well, we bad have to, deal. most of our friends. Then you, well, I was telling Dale, that is one thing. He, he wanted to know what I'd tell the other people. And that was it. Enjoy and admire and, and keep your friends. Yeah. Keep them. Yeah. Uh, that's one of them. When you lose all your friends, and we've almost lost all of our no, friends. No, you have not. Well, I, no, no, we've got we friends. Well, yeah, we but, but let me tell you. Well, you know, we've got you. The friends. <laughs> the friends I, I consider Dale a friend. But the same token, I know he doesn't think about the things that I think about. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that's it's, right. It's, uh, and that's, that's like this fellow that's our friend down in, in Cape Fear. He, he, is, he, he will do anything. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And I, I consider him a real good friend. But by the same token, we don't go down to his house. Sure. You know. Yeah. Uh, and he'll come. We, I'll, we go down there on special occasions. And he and his wife, she'll come up here sometime in the next week. God will bet you a million dollars. And she'll put right here, she'll put a, a big, big bowl of chocolate chip cookies that you cannot. Oh, I, I told her one time, that's the only problem I have with those chocolate chips. There's just not enough of them. Boy, they are good. But anyway, uh, in the first place, you don't, there's not a lot of stuff at our age that you can do with friends. <laughs> you might play cards or something. But, uh, you can't really do that anymore. <laughs> okay, well, I think you... The, the